The constructive or combining power by which ingenuity is usually manifested and which the phrenologists, I believe erroneously, have assigned a separate organ has been frequently seen in those whose intellect bordered upon idiocy. Greetings, Poe fans. Welcome back to our one of our degree episodes. Jeannie! How well, yes, you? Carmen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Jeannie Smith. You're Carmen Bolden. Yes, yes. I decided to be different. <laughs> I was wondering. Okay. Oh. You, you, okay. Threw me off my flow. All right. So I'm okay. It's Monday. It's typical, rainy. It is. It's Every a very Poe-esque kind of day. Yes, it is. And it's, and should, you know, this time of year, it should be snowy, not rainy. It should. It should. But we only, I only have a day and a half left before we go on winter break. So I'd really like to get the students to get their exams or midterms done. So let's not have snow yet. Okay. Well, we'll hope for snow when you guys start back to school. Yes. Teachers, please forgive me for saying that because, yeah. Yes, you can find her on the Poe podcast if you really <laughs> Thanks, Jeannie. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. All right. All right. Okay, so we're, we are going to discuss science. Science, science. Oh, one of my favorite subjects, and especially this one. I it's know. Kind of a, it's kind of an odd science because it has been debunked as a pseudoscience. But in its time when it first started, it was kind of kind of popular but for weird reasons but you have to think about the guy who actually created phrenology that we know it as which yes. he himself never called it phrenology so he never wanted it he was always about theories on anatomy and the function of the parts of the brain but he never used the term phrenology didn't he use craniology and bumpology Inter something like inter that interchangeably yes. depending on the specifics of what he was he was discussing and I, I was gonna say and I, I interrupted you but um you know I know you're about to tell us the all about phrenology but mm -hmm. who is the man that came up with this well this was Dr. Franz Joseph Gall he was a controversial figure in his own time you know because medicine was in its infancy in certain areas mm -hmm. and so everything that anybody was coming up with there was a lot of critique going on and mm -hmm. controversy because people were like no you can't it's all about religion it's all about this or that or the other science was not was not considered kosher at that time right and a lot of it had to deal because when he started talking about well, I'm going to keep just calling it phrenology, whether he didn't or not. Oh, absolutely. He was, it was starting in the days where you had science making a reform. You had Sir Isaac Newton coming up with gravity. You had the laws of motion. You had those things coming up. And he just delved into the world of anatomy. And he was born in 1758, died in 1828. He okay. was from uh, Vienna. So he was in the Austria area. Okay. So he was developing these theories as early as the 1790s. So basically, probably in his late, mid to late 30s. Okay. Um, and then uh, in 1805, he had a student and a follower that joined him, J.G. Spurzheim. Forgive me okay. for butchering because he also is Austrian. Um, that Spurzheim. He embarked on a lecture tour with him. And as at this time, where did they, most people do their anatomy studies was in prisons or asylums. Yes. So unfortunately. Yes. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, the sad part is, is at that time frame, those were unprotected guinea pigs, basically. Yeah. This they, was they, way back they, before we had, you know, we had the human uh ban on testing right and they kind of just considered if someone was you know put in prison they were fair game 
and right. not, not considering anybody's human rights. Exactly. Back then, if you were in an asylum in a prison, you were treated much worse than stray dogs or cats or any other type of animal. Yeah. So in 1807, mm -hmm. he settled down in Paris and started doing his, you know, major work on the cerebral functions. Okay. And he published his first volume uh, called Anatomy of the Physiology of the Nervous System. I'm, I'm redoing it because I'm not about to say it in, you know, that language. I could, I'll butcher it even more. Oh, that would be and, fun, uh, Jeannie. <laughs> Anatomy et Physiologie du Système Nouvelle. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know if anybody understood what I just said or if I butchered it bad enough to where the French are going to hunt me down. Uh, or the Austrian or whoever. But he was, this is the first and still the impressive accounts of structure and dissection of the human brain without ever actually breaking into their brain and looking at it from a physical point of view. Because okay. remember... He is deciding all of this just based on the bump and the shape of the skull. He's not cutting into them. He's not looking at the brain as a specimen mm -hmm. on a table. He's looking at it from kind of judging it like he had x-ray vision or something. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And looking at it from just the perspective of the skull, the shape, the, the bumps, and things like that. I, I mean, it, it's all observation based and supposition. And it, I can see where this definitely quickly became a pseudoscience. Absolutely. I mean, and you can also go back to look at where in museums and um, are the artifacts and stuff like that. If you go back to Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal days mm -hmm. where they would use the skull with the high bridge you know, high bridge line and all right. that to designate where they were Cro-Magnon, where, you know, their level of Homo sapiens. Yeah. And so in essence, he's taking that as a partial foundation and stepped it up to a little bit more to where he pretty much said the cerebral anatomy mm -hmm. isolated it to 27 innate human faculties that he said correspond to the areas of the organs of the particular brain and maintain right. that the size and development gave them greater or lesser disposition. However, here's the thing. Later on now with our new, you know, since the 20th century came about and then the 21st century, mm -hmm. a lot more studies have been put into place. Uh, and they found that even in his earlier studies, he actually made mention towards the idea of aphasia, which many people are hearing it now because of um, Bruce Willis. Right. Because right. that's what he recently got diagnosed with. And aphasia is literally, it's where the, I'm pretty sure it's the frontal part. I'm sorry if I got that wrong, but it's where everything, he can't talk. He's losing his memory. Right. It's like it's like a worse stage of dementia that it comes on quickly and it just wipes the person out. Yeah. And they've found from some of his studies early on that he actually pinpointed. Now, he was far off by any means of where it actually was and everything. But he actually gave a little bit of notification that that particular part of the brain did those things. Okay. In his, in his studies. He pinpointed that those, you know, that area of the skull gave disposition for that particular thing. Okay. Some of his more faculties included, like how you know, the love of one's children, uh, your covetousness, your pride, your sense of place, your talent, your purpose, memory of words, and center of a language is what the faculty that aphasia came from. Okay. Yes. And I, I was looking it up while you were discussing that. And it looks like you're spot on with exactly what you were saying. So. And so that's pretty much, and he's, he's known he hasn't been dedicated as the father of neuroscience, but he definitely laid the foundation of neuroscience. Yeah. And the actual word 
phrenology is derived from two Greek wor root words. Phren, P-H-R-E-N, means mind, and logos, L-O-G-O-S, is the study or discourse. So phrenology yeah. is the study or discourse of the mind. Yeah. And God himself, once more, never approved of the term of phrenology. Mm -hmm. He simply referred to it as organology. Yeah. And then <laughs> Schlodler, oh, probably butchered his name too, <laughs> later simply called it the physiology of the brain. Mm -hmm. so, and that, um, and that but, really makes sense with it based on, you know, the study and what they did. Right. And the thing about it is, is most people didn't really do a lot of study of the brain. They usually used live people instead of cadavers because, you know, back then, even though the microscope was around and they were talking about atoms and the nervous system, they still did not understand all the inner workings yet. Mm -hmm. So that's why they depended upon just the physicality. However, there is a bad side to phrenology, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. With anything else, um, phrenology actually was used by certain groups for racism. We'll just lay it out there like that. Yes. And the biggest known one was the Nazis. Yeah. Because they would be doing, and they're the ones that took uh, experimentation to a whole level of hell, like yes. all the way to the ninth ring. So, yes, they would use phrenology in their hmm, experiments, as we'll call them, mm -hmm. and use them to basically wipe out a race right and it is you know it's a pseudoscience for a reason and if you've ever seen any kind of the old movies or stuff and you've seen some of the fortune tellers in this old movies they'll use their hands and they'll put them on your head and they'll they'll fill your head and all that and they'll re they'll literally read your skull like they're reading the palm of your hand yeah. So it was used in that also later on in like I think the mid to late eighteen hundreds is when that started. Yeah. And yeah. and to to say all this, uh, why we are talking about phrenology is that Poe became interested in this pseudoscience and used it in some of his works, his some of his short stories as well as his criticisms, um, he first used it in 1836 in a criticism to on a book about phrenology. And I think it was, was it Mary Miles, Jeannie? Was that the lady's yeah. name? Yeah, sounds right. Mary Miles. Yeah. yeah. And um, trying to find it in my notes. But, um, and so he was criticizing her book and, then decided to really, he kind of, I guess, kind of read up on all of Dr. Gall's interpretations of the pseudoscience and everything and used part of it in some of his works. Um, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what was interesting in one of the articles that Jeannie and I found was that they suggested that Poe kind of diagnosed himself <laughs> you know, yes. with, with the, um, character traits basically that come from the, um, hold on. It's the, I was trying to find it. He applied the phren phrenological character interpretation to himself. Yes. And I mean, in that day and age, because the United States was one of the countries that had adopted phrenology as a study. Mm -hmm. When uh, Gaul and his sidekick, rather than me trying to butcher his name again, uh, and his sidekick, when they started doing tours and speeches, kind of like lecture tours, yeah, they would visit most of the countries in Europe. And then those doctors and stuff, they would come back into America. So it started spreading and it became kind of a wide set, you know, widespread idea mm -hmm. of just... In my opinion, it was like not just neuroscience, but it also lended itself to the psychological. So yes. if you want to add in to like 
it kind of spurned the idea of looking at the psyche, not yeah. just the physical. Right. And so in the early 1800s, when this was when he was, you know, publishing his books, they were doing their tours. However, around about the mid 1820s and the 1830s, the terms and the ideas about phrenology started getting a little bit, you know, scoffed at. Not yeah. a lot of doctors and people were taking it seriously anymore. And yeah. then Poe himself, when he started putting it in there, um, he kind of chalked it right up there along with religion. Yeah. And so, you know, it was... Once more, just like everything in those early days, a lot of things panned out, came out to be truth or led to different things. But most of the time it was people just like, are you crazy? Yeah. You know, where are you getting this stuff? It's like these tonic dealers that would go around to different towns and try to sell you the, you know, cure all and it just be a bottle of whiskey. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The, the, for lack of a better term, snake oil salesman and things like that. Exactly. So he became kind of seen as a type of a snake oil salesman when it came to uh, the idea of being able to feel someone's skull or look at the how high their forehead is or how far apart their eyes are or how their ears are shaped or how or the, long the bumps their, on the skull yeah, or, how long yeah. their skull is and all kinds of things. When, you know, he didn't realize, and nobody did at that time, they did not realize that when a baby is born, they're born with 306 bones in their body. And mm -hmm. the majority of those bones are in their skull because yeah. a baby's skull is still uh, solidifying even right. after born. Yeah. That's why they say don't lay the baby on the back of the head for a long time, you know, make sure they're turning. and Yeah kind of like when you're baking bread if you make you know put a hole in the middle of it it's not going to rise very much right and, <laughs> and babies skulls they found out that because the back of the skull was the last part to actually fuse the bone that if you let them lay there too much they would develop these craters or these uh dips in yeah. their skulls so you know exactly. once more he was studying the idea of the placement of the bumps and everything, but he was way off on what they were dictating. Right. I think <laughs> only actually uh, the two things he even got close to being correct was about the memory and the language. And that was only because he got it in the right area of the brain. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> everything yeah. else was like, dude, you've off, you're off your rocker. You know? Oh, I know. And um, with Poe, kind of like applying this character interpretation to himself. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a quote from this article. His forehead is extremely broad, displaying prominently with the organs of ideality, causality, form, constructiveness, and comparison with small eventuality and individuality. And so I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, even Poe himself did not carry phrenology to the excess of, you know, up until he died in about 1845, he kind of stopped using phrenology in any of his characters or his stories to describe some of them. And what's also interesting. Uh, one thing I read is that ide ideality is the, the first one that this article talks about with that it is represents the perfect uh, characteristic of a poet, orator, or artist. And so Poe began, instead of using ideality, he changed the name to imagination, which yeah. really makes sense. Yeah, I mean, imagination comes from the light bulb moment of an idea. Yeah, yeah. So it fit perfectly with ideality. Um. And well, number th another thing is that it wasn't really called phrenology, but I still remember it when I was younger and in school and back uh -huh. in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, how you know boys and girls were being—I don't want to really say set apart, but in essence, yeah. it was 
not, you know, not specifically, but there was always the terms coming out of like, if you have a large forehead, you're smart. Yeah. You know, yes. or you've got a big brain and that makes you, you know, that kind of thing. So it didn't dawn on me till later on in the years that, wait a minute, they're using kind of the, the ideology of phrenology by the shape of the skull, how big your skull is as how large your brain is, meaning how smart you are. Right. Yes. So, You're yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So it, it's still being miscatered to mm -hmm. a lot over the years, but thankfully with the, you know, development of a lot of the, the neuroscience that we have with DNA testing, with being able to look at things from a, you know, atom level, DNA and all that. Right. <laughs> and they're still, they're still developing ideas about the brain. Mm -hmm. I have seen a few things say where they've always talked about how the, you know, scientists have only mapped out 10% of the brain so far. Yeah. And actuality that's, you know, true, but not true. It's like where we use you, you, you hear the idea of you're only using 10% of your brain. Right. Well, the doctors have found that, yes, we are using a lot more uh, parts of our brain, but they just haven't figured out what they specifically adhere to. You know, what right. do they go with? Or are they something separate? Or, you know, is something more developed in this area, meaning you can do this better than somebody else? So it's still developing even today. Right. But and and I was going to say, because when you think about all the organs in your body, the brain is probably the most mysterious organ we have because it's harder to study because of how, how um, in depth it is. I'm looking for another word and I just can't think of it off the top of my head, but there's so many parts to it. And after someone dies, you can't study the brain. I mean, you can pick it apart and see like how large different areas of the brain are when you separate all the different sections, but you can't study it after someone's died. And so yeah. it, it that, just, yeah. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Is it's the only, it's the only muscle or organ in our body that that scientists can't truly study and know everything about it because they can't do experiments on humans. Right. Exactly. You know, and they do, they do set up uh, gorillas and stuff and try to do some of this testing with them. But once again, there's a close, there's a closeness, but it's still not exact as diverse yeah and dense as a human brain yeah it's like many people many people get scared witless after someone's died especially if they're transporting the body or in their, their funeral home and they're getting ready to embalm them or whatever because the body is still like draining out of the blood and the muscles are you know, when it gets in rigor, but the moment mm -hmm. it comes out, the body will start reacting like it's really alive. Right. Exactly. And a lot of, I think a lot of people don't really know that. No, it, you know, it's like when you cut off the head of a snake, more people get bitten by snakes after they've chopped their head off mm -hmm. because a snake is an invertebrate. Pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So when you cut the head off, those muscles and those fangs, because the sacs with the talk, you know, with the toxicity and this poison or yeah. whatever venom, venom. I knew I was looking. I was like, "What's the word venom?" You had it. It's, <laughs> it's still in the head, right? So that head will contract and it'll bite onto the closest thing, and most of the time, it's the person that just cut its head off. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we heard the. It's old not question. funny. It just sounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds freaky because you're like, yeah. what? Uh, yeah, so it's, you're not, most of the time you don't need to be afraid of the live snake as much as you do if you chop its head off. Right. 
you know it's like the old cliche of you cut the head off the snake the body will die yes yeah the body dies but i guarantee you that head will still come for you yeah at least one or two minutes afterwards because the muscles will still stay constricting exactly and you know i'm very happy that that poe did not write a story about a snake me too i wonder why not you ever think about that he had quite a plethora of animals in his stories but i don't you know snake wasn't really one of them yeah and but you know back during that time frame thank god yeah really snakes and spiders you know we're gonna throw in the shark those Mm -hmm. animals were not as predominant as scary during that time frame that kind of came i think more in the 20th century and i know we're digressing from what we're talking about but just had to throw that out there well and also you know you have to see that poe spent a lot of his times in the city yes and very rare you find you know i mean you find a few spiders but not any of the deadly ones around a large group and and snakes are the same thing because they're yeah you know they hide but we digress and so it is odd in one way that poe um actually jumped on the bandwagon of phrenology and put it in some of his stories and even identified himself in certain areas but at the same time not really because he was uh pretty much i think a proponent of charles darwin and his study of the species mm-hmm. natural selection and those kinds of things so it's not really that far-fetched that he would include a type of neuroscience in his work right a- absolutely and it, it very and well with his imagination yeah and poe was heavily um interested in science so it does make sense he it's very evident from all of his works that he was keeping in the the forefront of everything that was going on within all the worlds of the genres, I guess you could say, you know, of literature, of science, um, of all the things that he was writing about. He very much was read. Um, I'm trying to think of the right thing to say. Um, he he definitely kept up with everything to the minute detail to where he knew everything that was going on. Yeah. He stayed very involved in the the society and everything that was making up the society, the trends, the ideas. And we've talked about how he, you know, really did not like transcendentalists. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I I could see how he would maybe use phrenology against the transcendentalists. I have not read all of his critiques to definitely say if he did or not. Um, But I could, I could see where that could go in that direction. Oh, I can definitely see him using phrenology against them. Yeah. And um, I just found the, the book I was uh, talking about that he critiqued, in uh that he first referenced phrenology was in march of 1836 in a review that he did on mary miles phrenology and the moral influence of phrenology arranged for general study in the purposes of education so he did that's where he his first reference of of the pseudoscience was talked about yep and that makes perfect sense because the 1830s was uh, the time of the Reformation, where you had the Second mm-hmm. Great Awakening happening, you had the Enlightenment period, and you had the Reformation period starting where they were looking at changing prisons, uh, schools, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of things, science, mm-hmm. you know, everything was coming into play, and they were trying to figure out, wait a minute, this should not, you know, this should not be this way. Dorothea Dix was a very uh, big name during the Reformation period, which I'm kind of surprised that Poe actually never talked about her. Uh, but yeah. I guess she didn't really fit with what he was needing at the time. He probably knew about her because she was the one that was doing all the reports saying how the jails and prisons and everything needed to be changed because remember 
at that time, not only were they putting men and women in the same jails together, they were putting children in jail. They were charging yeah. children for adult crimes and mm-hmm. giving them sentences of adult crimes. So it was um, it was a very rough period of time. So yeah, phrenology is. I'm not shocked that it was a proponent at that time to try to identify why people did some things they did, you know, why are prisoners in prison, you know, does it have something to do with like, Oh, do they all have kind of like the same, the same skull shape is a particular point of their skull. Is there a bump that is like shared by all of them? (laughs) Well, and I I can remember from, my teenage years um, doing just some research on my own of, of not phrenology, but just some of the things about serial killers where the people who were studying them, even though that term did not come about until later, um, you know, till the, what was it, Jeannie, the seventies, is that right? Well, it was Robert Ressler. Yeah. I yeah. think it was the sixties or seventies when he coined the term yeah. serial killer. Yeah. And so, but, you know, um, you know, multi, you know, uh, multiple killings or whatever. And yeah. And that, you know, people, you know, psychologists and things would study people and it's like, you know, is it a certain type of, you know, their eyes are too close to each other. They're too far apart. Yeah. I remember reading some things about that kind of thing. And when you think about what phrenology is, it kind of ties into that. It's like, the, they weren't really using phrenology, but some of those elements, I think it's kind of like if you say something, but you didn't mean to say something or like you're in a court and the judge tells the jury strike that, you know, you did basically you didn't hear it. It's already been said. It's in your oh, yeah. brain. And it's kind of one of those ideologies that stick with, you know, um, scientists, psychologists, um, medical doctors that those those types of ideas still stick with what you're studying even though it's not conscious it's almost like the unconscious that it comes right. out you know and look at uh it was the 19 1930s i think 1936 when the doctor uh i can't remember his name but he was working at one of these uh highlands Mm-hmm. And he was doing lobotomies. Yeah. You know, to try to fix people. And right. yeah, it fixed them because it removed, you know, pretty much turned them into a vegetative state. Right. Right. So, and that kind of goes along in, with uh, Gall saying that the front part of the brain is memory and, uh, you know, speech and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. So it just, it's amazing how Gaul from the late, ni- you know, late 1700s mm-hmm. was probably in that day and time considered no better than a witch. Probably yeah. they would want to burn him at the stake because they thought he was spouting nothing but nonsense. Right. That actually had the foundation ideas that led to the neurosciences that we have today. Yeah. And then, you know, Poe, one of, uh, one of his stories that falls definitely into the world of phrenology is the, um, imp of perverse perverse. Mm -hmm. And he even uses the terms phrenologists and phrenology and all those others in that story. So, and I think it also lends to the stereotypes because phrenology was very much, you know, leading more towards a stereotypical, Mm -hmm. like we were talking about, if you had a big, you know, big forehead or big head to begin with, they automatically said you had a big brain, so you had to be smart. Exactly. Um, I I was going to say, I'm just going to throw this in. This is just kind of a little funny. Um, Jeff and I measured our heads for hat sizes 
to kind of mm-hmm. keep on hand because um, my husband, Jeff, wears a lot of hats and he, he looks really cool in hats and I wear hats occasionally. And so we, I was like, hey, brilliant idea. Why don't we actually write this down so when we're out somewhere, we can actually buy a hat that is, you know, the appropriate size, you know, that kind of thing. And so my head measured like seven eighths larger than his. And so I joked with him. I said, I'm smarter than you. I've got a bigger brain. And we were joking, of course. But it's just funny, you know, that when you think about that kind of stuff. And it did just you like, okay, why is my, you know, why is there different size skulls? Right, right. You know, I mean, especially when you think about it and you add in how uh, most are given IQ tests at a young age to decipher where they would fit in education wise. Right. Why not just measure everybody's head and say it's the same thing? If you have a certain, you know, certain IQ and then there's a bunch of people with the same IQ and you measure their skulls and they all have the same skull, you know, is there a core, you know, is a correlation here or is it, oh, or is it a coincidence? Exactly. And, you know, kind of going on the whole thing with mine and Jeff's heads, you know, mine being just a tad bit bigger than his, you know, he is very intelligent. And, you know, if you want to go into the psychology of it, you know, uh, you know, bringing in um, multiple intelligences, you know, that theory, he's very intelligent in certain areas that I'm not necessarily as intelligent in. And it's just, you know, that preference of what you are more apt to and um, kind of how you have learned things. But um so it's like, I'm not smarter than him just because my head is seven eighths bigger than his. It's just, it's silliness. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's the thing. That's why science has a specific uh, scientific method they use yeah. when you know looking at different things, because just because something might you know, fit together, like I was saying, the people who might have the same IQs have the same skull size mm-hmm. does not make it a correlation. It just makes it a right. coincidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'd have to do an actual, you know, uh, study that is, um, you know, with a control group, a tested yes. group and things like that. And who knows, something may have been done at one point it within, yeah. the, it within the study of phrenology on something like that. Yeah. And that would be, that would be extremely interesting to me, but at the same time, uh, the IQ test, the intelligent quotient tests that are given are based on general levels. And it yeah. also, it also doesn't take into you know consideration a non-formal education versus a formal education. Mm-hmm. Like think about Poe. Poe during the time that he was alive, he would have been considered in one of the you know high class, high level because he was one of the lucky ones to actually get an education, right? An actually, well-rounded education. Yeah, even though he didn't finish his college education, he still right. was able to gain some of that. Yeah. He actually got an early education. Yes. Which most uh most of that time most in that time period, if you were, you know, so let's say a female, if you were a female, you might have gotten some schooling if you had a rich enough family, but you only got schooling mm-hmm. in certain categories. Right. And kind of more of a finishing school with etiquette and things like that, more than the classical studies. Yeah. If any woman actually wanted to go into studying science and medicine, I mean, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, the TV show pops into my head every time I think about it. Yeah. Uh, There was actually a school, a college created just for all women because you couldn't find another school that was around a college that would actually give them an education that didn't include home ec or wasn't just something about how to, you know, raise their children, how Mm -hmm. to keep a home, 
So it just, even though phrenology is a pseudoscience, because once more, like I said, it was a coincidence rather than a correlation. Mm -hmm. It did lay groundwork for, you know, future scientists to start looking at things in a different way. Absolutely. And I think it's kind of ironic that actually in Poe's work, The Imp of the Perverse, Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't lay any kind of credit down to Gaul, but he does actually say he used those spur hum, spurs spurzimates. Good lord, I'm sorry, people <laughs> the spurzimates who are the followers of Spurzum, you know, who was his who was Gaul's sidekick. Yeah. And actually popularized the word phrenology because remember yes. gall cannot stand phrenology exactly yeah but it, it sounds so much better than bumpology it does it's like well you know kind of bumpology really yeah and well, then do you take into consideration people that had falls when they were younger that changed a skull if you have right. any kind of skull fracture or like the kids i was telling you if you yeah. You've laid a kid on its back of its head for a long period of time. They ended up with a flat space. Right, right. What does that indicate? You know, criminal, well, you know, criminal activity in their future. Well, and then another story that Poe did talk about phrenology in, because um, it referenced uh, phrenology and mesmerism. You know, being sciences that were uh, prevalent during the time frame of the story, and he kind of uses it more in a satirical way but because they talk about the it's some words with a mummy is the story sorry Jeannie I I I had to bring it up but Poe uses the satire with it because the mummy basically says oh those sciences have been around since my time you know kind of thing and so he doesn't just use it as pure science he does use it with some satire as well well, and if you if you actually look at it, uh, satire about the Egyptians and how they would preserve and mummify the body, mm-hmm. they treated the brain as nothing more than just you know they'd stick a stick a stick up somebody's nose and jerk it out and put it in a jar. Right, exactly. Because they didn't see it as anything. They just you know they thought that the heart was the soul of the body. Exactly, but. All of the organs had to be included with the body to be able to go to the afterlife. Which I thought was ironic. I mean, if all the organs are going to be with you in the afterlife, why are you pulling them out of the body and sticking them in a jug? I know. It, that, would, that, would be a, that would be an interesting thing to go back in time and ask the Egyptians. And it just goes to show you that when the development of any of the sciences, any of uh, the history that was put into play, it all was just uh, hit and miss. Yeah. It was a touch and go. It was like, oh, that worked. That didn't work. Oh, what is this? I don't know, but let's do it anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I still believe some of that goes on, but there's more calculated testing now, you know, with with the advance advancements of science that we have today. Right. I mean, think about it. Even DNA testing is not foolproof. Mm-hmm. When they do DNA testing, when they're trying to prove somebody or looking at it from a different way, in a criminal court case, there are 14 different DNA tests that the DNA is put through. Right. And it has to uh, meet the qualifications of, I think, five of them, three or five of them. Mm-hmm. have to match at a high level number before they'll say that, yes, this DNA belongs to this person. Yeah. And the reason for that is, is because DNA in itself has flaws. Yeah. Like with twins, if you were born, but the twin that was supposed to be in the same amniotic sac as you uh, happened not to develop, then that fetus that embryo actually absorbed the other 
embryo and the fetus mm-hmm. into their body. And that's why they called, they're called called chimera in today's yeah. because they have two sets of DNA. Right. And there is documented cases on file with criminal records of where, you know, you have beyond a reasonable doubt a person that did the crime, but the DNA that was found at the scene did not match them. Because of you know? that very reason. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, so science, and this leads me into the point of science itself, whether you're talking about the bumps on a head or, you know, the fingerprints on a person's body, uh, not everything is 100%. Yeah, absolutely. is different. You know, it's like nowadays, uh, the criminal world is starting to use earprints taking your ear instead of your fingerprint right yes i've heard about this that no two people on earth have the same ear Mm -hmm. shape or distinction or whatever yeah whereas there is actually a city it's either a city or a, a village or something in the european countryside i don't remember where exactly Mm -hmm. they're born without fingerprints oh wow so they don't have fingerprints so they can't do the fingerprint and the passport and all that kind of stuff because oh look you don't have any fingerprints so how are you going to find them so but that's that's crazy well um some others of post stories uh that he uses phrenology in um, one being murders in the room morgue and mm-hmm. Poe talks about basically characteristics of the, of a successful police officer that can basically catch criminals and things like that. Um, they have to be able to have not just an analytical brain. They have to have that imaginative brain or ideality, which would be the phrenological term. And so it's like that right brain, left brain. You cannot just use analysis because it's based on the facts and what you have in front of you. And so like Dupine has both. He sees those facts, but he looks at everything else around him to figure out who or, you know, what, you know, depending on what the crime is, who did it or where the item is and things like that, kind of alluding to the purloined letter. And yep. so I just, I think that's very interesting that, you know, that Poe described this. And when you think about many of the detectives that have been, I don't want to say copied, but things Created. borrowed, yeah, borrowed from Poe, you know, with Holmes, uh, Perot, you know, and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. they all tend to have both of those phrenological characteristics, you know, the ideality mm-hmm. And the, um, I think the other one was called uh, constructivism or constructive, constructiveness. I think, is that right, Jeannie? Yeah, constructiveness. Yeah, it's it's the both, both of those. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. It does. And, you know, later on in many of the behavioralists that we have that came about in the 20th century and even now into the 21st century, the behavioralists are the detectives that not just look at the physical, but they're actually looking at the behaviors of how people mm-hmm. acted, how they responded. And they're using that based on a commonality of human behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a mentality where can be traced back to the phrenology of the ideality and the constructiveness. Right. You know, how would a person act? There's been sayings of where the majority of the females that are killers, they kill by poison. Mm-hmm. They don't do it with any kind of violence. It's more of a silent and deadly attack. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's phrenology, which the pseudoscience and even Gauls like, no, it's not that it's the anatomy of the the nerve you know the system of the brain is what it's called yeah he started it basically as a child that plays with play-doh 
you know, that's putting Legos together and don't know how, what the shape's going to turn out to be or what they're creating or what they're making. Right. They just know it's got something and they've got Play-Doh in their hand and they can, they can mush it and they can make different things out of it. Yeah. That was pretty much the, the basics that you could apply to the study that he created. Um, by saying a bump on the head is like, oh, that means they're going to be really good with their children. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> and not only that, but you have to remember, he also had a separate between male and female, too. Yeah. It wasn't just, you know, the female was all about how they would love a child and everything. And then the male was re- regulated to how they would treat uh, other people, how good they were in business, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. it was, it was, it was not even a 50, 50. I would say it was more of a 25% of everything he thought. Yeah. Had some idea to where it might fit into true science. Whereas yeah. the other 75% was the time that he was alive and what was going on in society uh, and the ups and downs, uh, the way society was being uh, normalized and that kind of thing. And they were just pulling it from that. I agree. And, you know, something I just thought about with kind of, this is going back to the detectives train of thought with, you know, right, right brain, left brain, um, thinking about research, good research that you know like for dissertations and things you have quantitative which everybody has to do quantitative but to have an exceptional dissertation you have to add that qualitative piece when and when you think about it it's analysis on both sides but it's numbers and it's also kind of that human quality with the qualitative and so even that you could even embed in phrenology, not saying it came out of that, but it ties to it with that constructive constructiveness and ideality. Yeah. And the, the real kicker when it comes to qualitative research. Yeah. Unlike quantitative research, when it's all about the numbers and the, you know, specific, yeah. you can't, you know, you can't really lie when it comes to numbers because what you're testing is a solid you know a you know solid grouping yeah whereas in qualitative when you're doing anything with humanity of any kind right you're never going to get a 100 percent on anything you can always take that research and for like one thing or the other you can skew it to where it can fit with whatever theory you can come out of. Like I was saying earlier, if I got a group of people that had the same IQ and then I did a study of, you know, how many bumps they had on their head or where it was at, it's like, oh, look, this fits. No, it doesn't. (laughs) So that's kind of like what was happening in those days is he was trying to use theory of a scientific outcome Mm -hmm. to pinpoint how the brain works in different people and how people are the same or in, you know, how people go crazy, how people commit crimes. Yeah. But the problem was, is he was trying to apply a qualitative, a quantitative, quantitative outcome to a qualitative research. That's a nice way to say it. Yeah, it just, he couldn't do it. Now, if he had yeah. the, if he had the MRI machines and if he had the CAT scans that we have now and the x-ray machines and things like that, I mean, sure, he could cut somebody's brain open and look at it from the inside. But like we were saying earlier, if a person's already dead, when you look at the brain, it's not going to tell you anything other than, whoo, look, it's there. You can weigh yeah. it. You can see how you know big it is. That you can see if one side in one side smaller than the other one, you know. But you can't really dictate what that means. And he couldn't yeah. because he didn't have the right technology. 
he didn't have the scientific advancement that we do today. And the buy-in of people that would support him. And, you know, with the, with the direction that phrenology went as like to the extreme of the Nazis use of it, I'm right. very happy that it did not prolong itself in our world because it, you know, when you really think about it, there's some hatred involved in it. Yep. We, uh, you know, there was, there was stereotypical behavior that was plunged into it. There was mm -hmm. a socioeconomic discretion. Yeah. Uh, there was segregation. There was all kinds of things. Yeah. Culture, geography, everything played a part in how people viewed it and used it. Mm -hmm. And so I am truly glad that for the essence of phrenology, it was not kept for a long period of time. And people started saying, this is stupid. Why are we well, listening to this? Right. And, and I'm glad it didn't, you know, it, it stopped and it did not evolve into a true science that, right. you know, it was now, you know, and like Poe put into his, work it turned into a satirical yeah. uh, story you know a satirical way of thinking of things it's like it, it wasn't treated as truth exactly and uh, you know a, a story that does really um add in the satire with exaggeration that poe wrote is the businessman he yes. definitely um took that to a very um farce level of satire um, he also, some of his other stories that he used phrenology in, or there, there's a kind of a stylistic elements in there, um, diddling considered as one of the exact sciences that just, that term always cracks me up. Yeah. Um, diddling. The colloquy. Do what? I said, don't be diddling. Yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, colloquy of Manos and Una and the devil in the belfry. Both of those um, are, you know, stories that he used it in. And I think The Devil in the Belfry might have been one of the last ones that he used it. Right. And hey. that, that what's funny about that story is everybody's obsessed with time. And the devil comes in and makes the clock chime 13. And so mm -hmm. it just, everything... It, goes into chaos yeah we tell much else about that exactly and that just goes to show that there's another genius behind poe because he was able to utilize these idiosyncrasies mm -hmm. of the time period to fit into the farcical of creations right and he made them at one point, you know, you start and you're like, what? He can't be, you know, he can't be saying what he is. But then all of a sudden he smacks you upside the head going, put, psych. Yes. Just kidding. If you actually believe this, you're a moron kind of thing. Yeah. Because and, it's just satire that he's coming at you with. Oh, yeah. And all of those stories just the, that I just mentioned, you know, definitely have that, you know, style of satire. But two other stories that he used it in, which uh, I guess you you could definitely say is more poetic or, you know, filled with art, is Lygia and the Fall of the House of Usher. Because when you think about the descriptions he uses to describe Lygia and Roderick Usher, both of them the way he talks about her eyes, they're bigger than life. And I can't remember, you know, I can't quote the story. But, you know, that the phrenology piece comes out in that. And I believe I think she had a larger forehead as well. And then Roderick Usher talking about his, you know, head, his, you know, um, forehead and things like that. And so right. he he could use it. And again, Poe, as, as the genius writer, with all the different genres he wrote, he could not only take a pseudoscience and include it in satire and make it work, you know, beautifully, as well as taking two horror stories and adding artistic license, I guess, if you will, 
to the descriptions of characters that if you read both of those stories, you're not going to forget them. Right. Yes, he was, he was well-versed. You could tell his intelligence with how he could cater what he knew and the trending of the time mm-hmm. and use society to make his works stand out above all the rest. Yes, absolutely. It's just like in the imp of the, per, you know, perverse, perverse. Thank you. Yeah. I started to say universe. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> he actually puts the phrenology in the same, you know, same section as a deity. As if yeah. God, you know, it's like in the matter from the story, it says in the matter of phonology, for example, we first determined naturally enough that it was the design of the deity that man should eat. We then assigned to man an organ of elementiveness. Yeah, that word. And this organ is to describe the scourge with which the deity compels man willy nilly into eating. So he's kind of tying it in together saying that okay well first of all we're saying that there's a deity that created this created the bumpology or whatever you want to call it just so we can know what you know how to eat and where to eat and when to eat yeah it's like he's taking a shot saying we're not sure that you know both of those kind of work together yeah i i agree because, you know, we've always talked about how he includes a religious aspect in almost every single work that he does. Yes. And he he doesn't really come out and bash religion as a whole. He just brings it to the forefront to say, yeah, I, I hope that there is a higher power that I'll that I'll be able to visit and see those on the other side that there's an eternal place that I can go because I've been tormented in the real, in the real world. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's like, uh, I still have doubts. Yeah. Well, and something that you say a lot and it's so true. Poe leaves the interpretation to the reader in many of his stories. And that's why when we have our Poe unplugged group, it, it's so awesome to hear everyone's version of what they get out of the story, because I have learned so much from other people in our group about, Oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that perspective. And it just, it adds so much to rereading the stories because post stories is something I can reread. I'll, I will reread for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah. And like we also discussed when we were in our Poe and Plo grouping, that the way we read it once, like when I was younger, I read one story. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw the Raven and then I, you know, read the Raven, read Annabelle Lee, you know, Telltale Heart, Fall of House of Ushers. Mm-hmm. And how at that young of an age, when I read it again 15 years later, the perspective had changed because my life experiences had changed. Absolutely. Yes. And so that's why Poe's work to me is a kaleidoscope of learning. Yes. Because if you read a particular thing in a particular time period of your life, you know, whether and what emotional level that you're on is a big indicator too. Mm-hmm. You will always get something different. It may not, it may be minute, but there will always be something different that you will interpret from that work. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter the size of your head or skull. No, or how many bumps <laughs> you had. Thank That's God. Right. Because, yes. you know, if you were accident prone like I was when I was younger and you know fractured my skull twice, I had more bumps than probably normal. That I came out with, you know. <laughs> well, on oh. that on that note, Jeannie, do you have anything else you want to say about phrenology? Nope. I think we have covered it and we've covered the the existence and how we are still using basic ideas from it today. Elements, so, yeah, I I, yeah. I agree. 
it's it, it's fascinating, but glad it's in Pandora's box as a whole. Yes, I don't want anybody to use my skull as a fortune teller of my, you know, mm -mm. my world and my intelligence because some days I feel like I'm smarter and some days I'm not. And it has nothing to do with how many bumps are on my head. That's right. That's right. So. Well, and we, we did mention Poe Unplugged, and this is just mm -hmm. a, a nice reminder to everybody. Every month, the last Tuesday of each month, we do Poe Unplugged. Uh, you can go to our website and sign up. Uh, there's a Google form, and we will send out the Zoom link the morning of the event. And mm -hmm. we always give you about a month ahead of time to know what story we're reading and we'll discuss it. Sometimes we have special guests to add um, additional information that above and beyond what Jeannie and I know. And so that's a really cool thing. And this episode will come out after we've had this month's because we had to move it up for uh, the holidays. But right. in January, it's going to be January 30th. We're going to be reading the murders in the Rue morgue. So definitely go um, give us probably till the end of the month. We'll have it up on the website and register. Email us if you have any questions about it at six degrees of Poe at gmail.com. Yes. And we would love to have you join us to the discussion of one of his very first. Well, it's the work that gave him the father of the detective story moniker. Absolutely. Yes. And we would love for you to join us for the new year of Poe. At, yes, yes, the new year of Poe. I like that. Yeah. All right. And also, too, check us out on our X, not Twitter anymore, Facebook. Right. We have our YouTube channel called Poe Unplugged. We've added um, some new features on there, Words on Wednesday. We have time travel, uh, time travel, <laughs> time, yeah, talk, time talks with Jeannie. I'm, I'm being hopeful here. Yeah, yeah, Time Talks with GD and On the Road with Carmen, and you'll learn all kinds of different things about history and Poe connections to states and things like that. Yep, and it's, it is interesting, and because we are teachers, we try to keep it not as, a, <laughs> not as if we're a classroom lecture. We try That's to keep right. a, little, a little levity and just uh, basic information to give you some a little bit more to learn that's right and we also have a, a patreon patreon so if you want to um, sign up for that and basically uh you you do have some really cool benefits that come with signing up on patreon and yeah. i can't think of anything else Jeannie. can you no i think we've pretty much covered everything we do have a newsletter Yes. Oh, um, yes. You can sign up on the newsletter through our website, sixdegreesofpo.com. And once a month, we will send out all cool information. We have our Gothic guests that we put on there for their little bio that you can find on Poe and Plug or on our pot, our, our, our Podify. <laughs> our Podify. Our podcast platform. Our podcast, yes. Yeah, podcast, <laughs> where they're called Poe Discussions. Good Lord, I think I think that tells us right then and there that it's time to call this to an end. I agree. Well, on that note, Jeannie, we, we are ho out. In the consideration of the faculties and impulses of the prima mobilia of the human soul, the phrenologists have failed to make room for a propensity which, although obviously existing as a radical primitive, irreducible sentiment has been equally overlooked by all the moralists who have preceded them.